lyrically. Yeah. Can none of y'all mirror me back? Yeah, hear me rap, it's like hand G rapping is prime. I'm young H.O. Raps great for dead. Wherever you're listening in the world and whatever time it is, welcome to Miami Nice. A confessional and increasingly uh, a, a confessional about all the weird and wonderful and insanely ridiculously talented people who have been drawn like moths to a flame, like Farrell to a Gong Lee for this movie. I am one half of the partnership that is steering this unfathomably fast car around late night Miami streets, Blake Howard, and giving directions and talking angrily on her cell phone loudly into the air is my legendary partner, Katie Walsh. Hello, I will not steer you wrong, my friend. I will not Never. give you the wrong navigational <laughs> <Never>. directions. <laughs> but we just keep driving into the sunset. Um, the legendary Bill Gibbiri wrote an amazing piece for Vulture. If you haven't already read it, about the incredible legacy of Michael Mann's Miami Vice. It again has been uh, one of his films that has grown. You know, fans and people around the world have sort of increasingly grown fond of. It's often called like the most the most Michael Mann film of all time. And as a result of that article, so many incredible people reached out to us and just seemed to uh, have some attention because Bilga gave us that sort of heroic shout out that he did on the, on the show. And one of the shout outs uh, was an extremely talented filmmaker who I've since learned doing a bit of research was actually an MTVU student filmmaker at 2006, which I think if you're, Seeing Miami Vice in 2006 as a student filmmaker maybe is like the greatest formative experience of his life. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so we have another talented writer, director, producer um, working across a whole stack of films whose latest film, in fact, has, I think not one, not two, but maybe in the behind the scenes, like three or four Michael Mann all-stars that have been around and is just a huge fan of this film and was dying to talk to us really about saying goodbye. One of the great endings in Michael Mann's entire oeuvre. So it's our pleasure to welcome, and I can tell you in a test and a screenshot is coming to our socials that he is actually nursing a mojito. Josh Caldwell, <laughs> welcome to Miami Nice. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And you left out the one great the one thing that makes that that timeline in uh, in Miami Vice so great is that he says, I don't remember the exact time. We'll say it's eleven twenty seven. He says eleven twenty seven o'clock. <laughs> like that. That's like the best. It's not at eleven o'clock on a Saturday night. At eleven twenty seven on a Saturday night, it's eleven twenty seven o'clock. Like it's, it's what it's one of those things, right? Especially when I remember seeing that in the theater, I was like, "That is a weird way to say that time." And, you know, well, 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 maybe it's the Irish bleeding through. We forget that Colin Farrell something. wasn't there. Colin Farrell wasn't there. Right, it's unequivocal right. at this point. But yeah, so I mean, please tell us about. You were already a student filmmaker in 2006. So I imagine you're seeing this movie out there. You're working in MTV. You're working in student films. Obviously, digital digital filmmaking now being democratized at that time. Like, tell us right from that right from the get-go, how important was that experience for you in the cinema? Because I think it, I mean, besides that line reading, it feels like um, something that was formative for you, Josh. Well, I'll, here's the funny part. I, just to back up a beat, um, and you talk about this being a confessional, I'll throw out an amazing confessional that I think few people have. So, you know, I came, I came of age, movie age, so to speak, in like the 90s, right? Like seeing all these fantastic filmmakers getting to make studio level films with huge budgets, but with really unique visions. You had Ridley Scott, you had Michael Mann, you had Soderbergh, you had Clint Eastwood, you had, you know, just David Fincher, just these insane you know even michael bay doing the rock and like you know just these really really awesome movies that were being made at the time when there was no franchise and so i i started seeing movies you know i kind of came of age and i started saying i want to learn more and i started watching like usual suspects and pulp fiction and like all these movies that i never i hadn't seen yet and i remember at one point i watched heat and at this point like you know i'd watched all these great movies, uh, you know, obviously like Reservoir Dogs, got very into Tarantino and all this stuff. And I, I watched Heat knowing nothing about Michael Mann. 
And I get to the end and I'm just blown away by sort of the epicness of this film and up comes the title directed by Michael Mann, written and directed by Michael Mann. And in my head I go, whoa, the, the guy that played Mr. Blonde in Reservoir Dogs directed <laughs> this movie. <laughs> and obviously thinking of Michael Madsen, but like yeah. it, it just in my brain didn't, cause I didn't know, you know, I completed it, but for, for like, Definitely more than a day. <laughs> That's amazing. I assume that the guy that played, you know, Michael Madsen actually directed this amazing epic story. I'm like, why is he acting? Like, he should just keep making movies like He that. should never act again. I mean, Mr. Blonde never is act good. Again. Just keep writing these crime epics, you know? Didn't and, and... know he had it in him, Michael Madsen. Exactly. So that's my, like, embarrassing story about it. But, um, and then obviously after I... I, I came to understand it. Like I remember seeing, you know, Ali in the theater on Christmas day, we went with my family uh, and then seeing collateral, you know, and stuff like that. And, and then going back and watching the insider, which if you guys ever do a podcast on the insider, like, please tell me it's my favorite movie of all time. Like I, I love that movie to death. Um, Listen, Josh, we'll have and- to talk offline about a potential bonus, all the president's minutes. But I, I oh. think what was great about, that show all the president's minutes uh, not only talking about pakula who's one of our guys um but i think that show has so many insider uh digressions <laughs> i think it's oh, just I'm like sure. it's, it's just sure. so many i mean the insider is just i mean it's a special movie it's really yeah insane. oh it's i mean it's it's it, it just like it to me that's the most in some ways the most man film but anyway coming back to miami vice so primed at this age seeing all these movies coming off of collateral which like to me was such a great blend of sort of michael mann's aesthetic with a very commercial sort of fairly straightforward narrative uh you know you just start hearing about miami vice and you're like this is gonna be the shit like i can't wait and i i remember seeing the theater and i remember hating it like really just being like what fuck was that like I, <laughs> yes. you know and and just kind of leaving like severely disappointed in in what i had just watched which i don't think is an uncommon reaction obviously um and you know and part of what i reached out and what i was so curious to talk about because i haven't yet heard it talked about is that i think that if you walk into a michael mann film expecting it to be framed through the lens of a commercial style action movie you will always be disappointed yes because that's not the filmmaker he is and if you instead view it through the lens of and i i'll I'll front everything i say after this with like i don't know michael personally i've never had this conversation with him this is all just conjecture and guessing (laughs) but that he is at heart an expressionistic experimental filmmaker he just has a lot of money on which in a giant canvas on which he can play and when you reframe your thinking through that his movies open up to you and become instantly, you know, rewatchable and you can create numerous podcasts about it, (laughs) you know, and, and sometimes it's like, you know, and I think that was my problem with it. I went in and like a lot of people did thinking this is going to be a big budget, shoot them up, you know, kind of thing. And it wasn't. And as a result, especially for somebody in like, you know, whatever they're, they're 20 years old or 22 years old. Um, you're not getting it, you know, and, and, and then, but the funny part is all the things that you dislike. And I may, I think I've heard a guest say this, all the things that on the first watch you dislike, those end up being all the things that you end up liking totally. when you come back to watch the movie. <laughs> yes. yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so that, so that was my initial thing was just to say, was just seeing it in the theater and just hating it and sort of now wishing, <laughs> well, I wish I had seen it differently, but over the years rewatching it and, and just continually rewatching his whole canon of, of movies I've come to, to, to appreciate because he's just, um, what makes him special is he's just, he, he, he's a big budget sort of action thriller type director that directs those movies. Unlike anybody else, you know, so often action movies are, are like, you don't really know who the director is, you know, and, or, or you can, it's, you're unable to really discern, you know, the aesthetic of it. But when you, look at a Michael Mann film, you just instantly know it's a Michael Mann film. Totally. And I, I appreciate you saying that he is applying, like he's an expressionistic experimental filmmaker, but he's applying that approach to what we think of as like these typical genre movies, like a heist movie, an undercover cop movie, 
an investigative whistleblower movie um where you expect it to be this genre piece but then it turns into this like really existential um often dread-filled or like very <laughs> ruminating kind of bleak ending um uh film even though the and it's also like suffused with romance but i do think that there's like this weird chemical thing that he's doing where it's like the genre plus the aesthetic approach plus the philosophical approach and that's what makes the michael mann movie yeah it's a it's a hanger on which he can yes put all these other clothes you know yeah, these exactly. genres and and even even with the biopics right even with this, the ones that are based on true stories like it's not i mean in every filmmaker when you're doing a true story you've got to make creative changes but he i think even views the the true stories as just a hanger on which he can explore yeah. The sort of psychodrama and and the deeper subjectiveness of of for the most part these men and their mm -hmm. stories and how they do what they do. I mean, obviously he's he's very into sort of men and the professions that they yes you know pursue and and he you know again as a filmmaker you have certainly as a filmmaker at his level you have the choice on the store of which stories you want to do, <laughs> and so obviously he's drawn to very specific ones. And I think that you know it, what's been interesting to me is that. You've seen, and I and I, I also think that man uh, that Miami Vice was such a turning point in in the work that he was doing too, and it's certainly an aesthetic turning point, built off of Collateral in some way. But that kind of with Miami Vice, he really started leaving sort of a lot of the formalism of his previous work behind, partly because he was no longer shooting on thirty five, which even with a ton of money still contains limitations, but also you know, you can see then that progression happen in Black Hat, which to me is his probably most expressionistic film and probably why most people really dislike it. <laughs> um, you know, but but Miami Vice became to me that turning point where he went full like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna really push so much of this stuff to the limit and just see how far I can take people with me. And whether that's a conscious choice or not, I'm not really sure. But you know, I, I, I think like if you look back at his time when you know he which is hard to do because he's buried all these movies but like from the little you know about his time at the london film school so much of that was built on that much more expressionistic experimental film work and and yeah you yeah know. he's he's buried those films or he's buried them inside one cutaway in ali to actually you <laughs> right. know like like there's a documentary playing and it's on the screen for 10 seconds and that yeah. was a michael mann joint you know right he's like no, i'll use that <laughs> yeah i'll use that uh, i'll take that license fee but yeah i mean <laughs> and, and and it's you know and he um and he admits like he he said that he as a young student filmmaker should be you should be feel free to make two minute you know uh movies about a a, a leaf or uh you know something blowing in the wind and then bury it so that nobody ever sees it i'm sure that's what he did but to me i think that you know i mean again the, the movie he credits for having him become interested in film is Dr. Strangelove. Like, I mean, that's, it's not, <laughs> you know, it, it, there's a, it's not a numerous other films. It's, it's a very quirky, you know, uh, I mean, comedy of all things, but it was in, it was there's, in. There's, there's one thing about Dr. Strangelove that I, I want to mention to folks, which I love. And I'm so glad you brought it up, Josh, because I rarely get to talk about it, but it's just something that came up in my research about it. So Dr. Strangelove, the, the one major thing that I think is so Michael Mann about Dr. Strangelove is, Kubrick asked the American Air Force if he was allowed to film inside a bomber. And they said no. And he goes, okay, well, can I just send a photographer there? And they said yes. And so he had one of his photographers come in and just take snaps. And then his set builders, button for button, right. reassembled a nuclear bomber cockpit right? <laughs> for Strangelove. That's what you see in the film. Right. So much so that military, like military <laughs> investigators went to him and said, where did you get, where did you get this? Because like, they're like, we thought you were going to take a snap and like partially recreate it. He literally created the actual inside of an American and they're nuclear like bomber. They're like, um, this is the actual thing. Nationals uh, are going to like infiltrate yeah. hey, our intel. We don't know what spies can see, but everyone can see Dr. <laughs> effing Strangelove, you jerk. Yeah, um, right. uh, like, and so I love, I love the dichotomy of those two things. Like one having 
you know, having actors like hammered up to variety of degrees, play multiple characters, like all the insanity of that movie. And yet couched in it is probably the most hyper-specific and hyper-realistic portrayal of but that's yeah, Michael. Bombers. That's Michael Mann too. <laughs> yes, yeah, like that's right. I recreated this mural I saw in Paraguay. Like you know, we and no it. I loved it in this location. We put it here instead. Like, right, that's... but like no one's going to be like, "That's a really authentic mural." No <laughs> but one... it, It's important to him. Important to Kubrick. You got put him. <laughs> the the shots in the cockpit are so minute really like i mean you get to yeah. see james you get to see james Earl jones who's in the movie plays the pilot in in strange love and so you get to see him and he's distracting because it's james l jones <laughs> right. you're like oh right. it's james Earl jones oh this is cool wonder how big a role he's gonna play um but yeah so i think i think that's what's so funny about man is that ability and like you said in, within and i just think it's so underrated it's so underrated great genre filmmaking it's so deeply dismissed and in australia we have a thing called cultural like what we call cultural cringe and and it just so happens that some of our look very uh, deeply admired and revered film critics um particularly david stratton who is like our, he had a movie show of the equivalent in australia of like the siskel and ebert sort of shows so he but he hates like cultural cringe stuff hate genre filmmaking and in our country ever just gets pushed to the side but i'm like Every one of Michael Mann's movies is a genre movie, technically, yeah. right? And yeah. and and every one of Kubrick's movies is a genre movie, but no one's ever calling them the genre movie because they've just got they're just loaded with so much everything, like that, that you they're overwhelming. Yeah, and I think especially with Strange Love, you know, versus a lot of other movies that were coming out at the time, I think probably probably part of that response was oh, you can do that. You can make a movie like that, <laughs> right. you know? Oh, well now it's open to us. I mean, coming out of like so much of the sort of tight formalism of the studio movies being made. I mean, in the same way that now today we're seeing that fatigue with like the superhero movies where it's utterly predictable. A lot of people enjoy it, nothing against them, but like you can, there's so many movies today and look, I've made them too. Like where you can, you see the trailer, like I know exactly what that movie is. Like, I don't even need to see it. I know exactly what it is. And I think like, you know, what's been interesting is like with Michael Mann in a good way or a bad way, everybody then sees the movie. You're like, that is not what I thought the trailer was going to be <laughs> yeah, based yeah, on the trailer. Yeah, yeah. I do wonder, like, you know, we've talked about these sort of phases of his career. And I wonder if like, collateral slash Miami Vice is sort of like the beginning of like, I don't know, would you call it like phase three yeah, like, yeah. of his career where he's like kind of embracing the digital, going for more expressionistic stuff and like kind of pushing that um, digital filmmaking and storytelling and like that, those sort of themes, they, they all those films seem to be like, of you know, kind of talking to each other or at least in relationship to each other. Yeah, it's a real trend. There's a real transition phase. I think. I think the insider is the is a for me the insider feels like a punctuation, like it mm -hmm. feels like yeah. a punctuation yeah. mark because it's like he is the ultimate zenith of everything that he's been trying to achieve. Yeah. Uh, philosophically and then and visually and it, like like Josh talked uh, said earlier mentioned earlier just like his more rigid classical formalism, and then yeah. the insider, I mean. He just to contrast the two opening shots of the, the insider and heat. He is this beautiful glacial composition of a train in Los Angeles, such a rare thing at the time at night, creeping right. into a station, bringing you the main character. The insider is a POV shot from inside a Hessian sack on your head. Yeah. Like the blindfold. Yeah. It's the blindfold right. looking out with like little flecks of light coming through the, 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 um, the, the thatch of the material. And, and then this overwhelming like car sounds bouncing around the road, this incredible mid Eastern music that's playing. It's so couldn't, there could so not be just, yeah, there's just an immediacy there that, yeah. I mean, heat is this epic, but heat is so controlled, even when yeah. it's not controlled, there's, there's one, there's one shot that foreshadows all this in, in heat, which is the scene where he goes to, I'm uh, forgetting on his buddy's name. Um, God, why can't he owns the taco joint? Why can't I think of his name right now? Treo. Yeah. Treos. In real life, and, he owns the tacos. Yeah, no, I was like, Oh, the taco stand now. I'm like, which, come on. Why, you know, he owns it. I'm trying to think of the tacos. Name, but, tacos. Um, <laughs> 
and 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 De Niro's in the house and and is shot with this really erratic handheld, like on a wide lens, really erratic, like moving through the house. It's the only time in that movie that he really does that. And and so, but the rest of the movie is so composed. And then contrast that with The Insider, which was the next thing, as just way more handheld, like much more tight close-ups, very few wides, like everything gets, it's like flipped. Yeah. And I'd be curious, like if I ever sat down with him and had a chance to interview him, I'd say like, what happened between Heat and The Insider? Like, where did this, where did this switch, like what caused this sort of switch in your approach aesthetically? I mean, I'm, I'm like so fascinated with Michael Mann's aesthetic because it's, 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 it's so unique. And I, part of me has been trying to figure out like how to do it, like not do him, <laughs> but like how he does it. Right. And I think like one of the things about digital, you know, especially is that, you know, even with Miami Vice, like he was still shooting with some fairly large cameras, you know. Yeah. And once he got into like Black Hat and and Luck and those movies where he started shooting stuff on the 5D, yeah. where, you know, you're just, I mean, just like Soderbergh, right? Like being his <laughs> own DP, like just using, like, I know so many DPs are, man, those movies look like shit. They look terrible. I'm like, yeah, but like they are. 100% him, you know, or 100% man. Like, I mean, so, 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 so big... cameras and mixing it like it, it's, it's so crazy. Like, and, and I think the fact that like, what's interesting is with man, he has all the money in the world. He does. It's, it's not a compromise. And, and yet he's deliberately making these choices to shoot things on digital for these purposes and, and taking advantage of their imperfections and taking advantage of what they do that it's really, you know, it's it's just interesting because he does have the money, you know, <laughs> and and he has the time like to to do it, you know, and that that brings me to something else. But go ahead, and you were going to say something. Oh, I was just going to quickly say with Soderbergh, he's just like a drastic overachiever. Like he's he may as well cater his own films. He edits them, he shoots <laughs> right. them, he directs them. Often, sometimes he contributes to the writing. It's just unbelievable. Like he's a he's he's not a unique human being in that. Oh, sorry, he's no. not. A, he's not, sorry. He's 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 a completely unique human being in that regard. Other than you know other filmmakers, he's just you know he went and shot and edited Magic Mike Double XL because he didn't want to direct. And I'm like. You're right. holding the camera right. for every shot. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like it's, uh, I mean. Might as well direct. Might as well. I don't but... want to talk to the actors anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very George Lucas thing. Uh, but no, I was yeah. just going to say, yeah, the, I, I think, I think that point, the, those points of the insider and this, uh, it's funny. I wanted to talk about this one for, with Katie is there's actually two crazy small handheld video cameras that get used in heat in a matching shot that it's sort of hard to pick up and we picked it up in one heat minute which was that shot where he oh, grabs, it's in the hotel yeah well in the hotel but he grabbed there's the other shot which katie will love which is where al pacino is allegedly grabbing henry, henry rollins, rollins and throwing him out a window <laughs> oh so yes that's this right tiny fraction of a second of like him like him grabbing his face and then the reverse angle shot like a little lipstick cam or something yeah. at that time yeah. yeah tiny lipstick cam and then the next one is exactly right josh is in the hotel with wayne grow and you can just see like after scrutinizing the living daylights out of that movie obviously you start to see those bits and you're like oh he's he was thinking about some of these things and then the inside he gave himself license to just do everything that he wanted like to that he had aspired to do and then when when you get past the insider and you go to Ali, his very conception of the way that he would compose like a you know the central you know storytelling device of the movie, which is all these different fights that map out and mirror parts of you know how his life's going down, they're all in these hyper crazy you know uh, handheld versions like where literally there's great such great photos of like michael mann holding a camera in over will smith's shoulder while he's oh, like yeah, punching yeah. a guy like lipstick cam, yeah, yeah he's doing that so yeah it's he's it's so weird to know whether it's like instinct or intuition or or, or it's or it's something that he's seen before that's influenced him but I, I feel so much that like he's he's such a guy who's about what is practical and what makes sense and what is going to underscore the themes that I'm delivering that I feel yes, like it's exactly. I feel like it's just all like we've got to shoot it like this and that's the only choice. And I, I respect that so much of, of choosing the style and the aesthetic and the camera to tell the story that you want to tell. And I think yes. that, you know, we've said this many times on this podcast, but like that's what makes it work so well in Miami Vice. Yeah. And the choices, the aesthetic choices that he he makes to tell that specific story. So 
I, um, I think if he, if, if, and, and this comes back to the subjectivity that he approaches every movie with, right? Like, I, I feel like if he could put a camera into a character's head through their, and shoot through their eyes, he would do it. <laughs> like I, I constantly feel like he's trying to get as inside and close up as as he can, and he uses a, a, a there's a there's a camera device called the PS Technic Skater Scope, which I used on Infamous, and and what it does is it's this weird long sort of thing that used to shoot miniatures. Like you use oh. it if you want to shoot in a dollhouse, right? Or or and it, it, you attach it to the camera, and then you um, you basically attach the lens on the other end and what it does is it allows you the effect that it has is it allows you to actually shoot super super close to your subject and keep them in focus and so it's sort of like a diopter i don't know yeah. why he wouldn't use a diopter but he uses this device he used it on i mean so much so that on luck every each camera team carried one with them like on Whoa. the shoot and and you can tell like so the shot so like for example the shot in um in, uh, in, in, in Miami Vice where they're in the trailer and they've just gotten in, you know, before they kill the guy with the detonator. And there's that shot on, on, on Jamie Fox. Mm. And it's like framed, like, right. Th that that's the PS technique. Oh my and, God. I, those, those close-ups, sorry to interrupt you. Those close-ups are like, so this period of man to me. Yes. Yeah. The, yeah. Those hyper, hyper close-ups. Like every time I see it, I'm like, yep, there it is again. It's a very <laughs> unique close-up. And yeah. it, oh, it's, it's when he does the over the ear stuff mm. and it's when he, and it's, it's, to me, it's like, how can I get this camera as close to the actor's face as possible without it being literally touching them? And, and it's this <laughs> aesthetic that again, like I, I wanted to try and use it because I wanted to see what it would do. But again, looking for, I, I'm, I, as a filmmaker, I love the subjective approach to things. Probably why I love Michael Mann so much, but like, I love to try and try and do it in my own work. And so I was like, how do I want to use this to my DP? And she like reached out and she was, she came back. She's like, everyone I talked to her, like, he wants to use this for what? Like, why <laughs> does he want to use this thing? And I'm like, let's just get it. Let's just, I kept trying on every movie to get it. Finally I did on infamous. And it was just like, it does. It just creates this really odd effect that allows you to shoot very, very tight close-ups and get very close to your subject um, in ways that regular, right. Like it, 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 it decreases the minimal minimum focus on your lenses and it just creates such a unique look. And a lot of, again, people don't necessarily like pick up on it as you're watching it, but all this stuff that Michael does in the movies does hit the audience, whether they're aware of it or not, yes. it is hitting the audience in some way. And I think that's also what he's always attempting to do is find a way to psychologically affect the audience as they're watching the films, whether they're aware of that or not. Yeah, it, it creates the overall effect of whether it's like that, that it's like weirdness or something like you, you mentioned the like 11, 17 o'clock, like it's just a little <laughs> bit weird. It doesn't sound right. The, those close-ups are a little um, too close. Like it's all a sense of, yeah, it's a subjective uh, like sense of, of, of weirdness or, or, you know, trying to get into the interiority of, of Jamie Foxx in that moment as he's like making the decisions of what he's going to do. Right. And, and, and it's can... just so not a part of traditional filmmaking right. uh, yeah. approach. And, you know, another great example of that is in, is in the scene that you guys talked about when, uh, before on another podcast where they're on the freeway and they pull over mm. and they have, uh, you know, John Hawk's character and they're like talking to him and there's that shot right before he walks in front of the truck it starts on Colin and it drifts to Jamie and then the focus drifts off to the background. Right. And it's a, it's a very subjective PO, It's almost a POV shot and it's just this odd effect. And you could just see what you're doing is he's going, we're going to give the audience the effect of this guy's mind just drifting into death, you know, and, and it's just going to drift off as he realizes that he's got nothing left and then he's going to step into the truck, you know, and, and, nobody only michael is really attempting that kind of subjectivity in an action film yeah you know it's it, to me one of the most haunting images i've ever seen in a film is in uh black hat um where they're in the middle of a shootout and um you know i'm so bad with names i'm trying to remember exactly what her now which which um actress it was viola davis um, yeah viola davis and 
and I only forget names when I'm on podcasts, by the way, um, <laughs> when she gets shot in the shootout and she's laying on the ground and the camera's over her as her eyes start to drift and then mm. it cuts to that shot of the skyscraper as it fades. And wow. it doesn't fade all the way out. It just fades just enough. You're like, whoa, holy shit. Like that was basically the perspective of someone dying. Yeah. And what <laughs> they last wild. saw. And that like freaked me out for a little bit. And you, <laughs> you don't expect that from a movie like that, right? You just, oh, she gets blown away. And right, right. on the floor and you're done. Like, but No, he like takes a moment to like have, make us share in that. Yes. Yeah, it takes a moment in the middle of the shootout to show the perspective of, of death encroaching on somebody. You're just like, whoa. <laughs> like, yeah wild and in the middle of a movie like that a thriller like and i mm -hmm. think that's what makes these movies of his so insanely rewatchable you know yes, and yes. and and in a way you know and and with miami vice i think that's that's to bring it back to that because we talked a lot about a lot of the other you movies, don't have to worry about the you don't have to worry about the digressions we've got you yeah <laughs> but it's you know it is it is that nature of it it's when colin farrell's you know, up on that bout, you know, up in the, the apartment of Nicholas's place and he drifts off and he's looking at the view out, out the window of the, of the ocean. It's like these little moments that just open it up in terms of it not being this straightforward action film. So Josh, I'm dying to know, I'm kind of changing the subject here a little bit, but um, your newest film, Mending the Line, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply has Brian Cox and Wes Studi. So when yeah. you were shooting, were you like dying to just be like, tell me about Michael Mann, talk to me yeah. about Man Hunter? <laughs> I really- <laughs> Or, or were I you did, holding yourself back or were you like, just like getting I into it? be too much like, I only hired you because you've worked with Michael Mann. And, uh, <laughs> I don't care if we finish the movie, I just need you to tell me about your experience. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it definitely was a little bit. I mean, you know, certainly, it's not really why, you know, but, but I think like, I, I mean, Brian I, Cox I, is Brian, great. Brian <laughs> Cox, he's a, Brian, Brian he's Cox, amazing. Wes Judy, they just, their talent, their yeah. unfathomable They're, talent literally right. speaks for itself. Like you just like, if you said I was hiring those guys at any other time, but if you're a Michael Mann geek and you've got the option to hire those guys, it's like, <laughs> oh, I'm hiring those guys. Are you kidding? Oh yeah. I mean, is I, Tom I, Noonan I available? Doing, which, yeah. Which we'll, we'll come back to, but I did <laughs> in 2015, I directed a series that was on Hulu for a little bit and it's not very good, but it was set in Miami <laughs> and we shot in Miami. And so I got to spend like basically six months in Miami and, and there's a bunch of stuff I went and did there. But one of the guys, I remember one of the actors in it, I was looking at a couple different options and this guy, he, he had played the air traffic controller in Miami vice. Yeah. The, and the I guy, was like, yeah, that guy we're hiring that guy like, <laughs> you're like of all the guys just that one <laughs> okay there's three guys are equal well this guy was in a michael mann film so we're gonna hire him amazing and i asked him about it i was like so you were in my advice he's like yeah dude he was like it was awesome and i said well what was it like he was like it was crazy he's like you know we set it up he's like the scene in the movie is like three seconds long it's not very long but he's like they shot there for like at least half a day and he said what he did was they set it all up he's like michael came in he had the, he got some shots and then he basically said to the camera guy who's like all right hose it down and then he left and the camera guy just like shot but you know reams of material um <laughs> of this really short scene you know but and that was his experience he was like yeah we shot michael was there for a beat he kind of like did a couple things and then he said all right just keep shooting and hose <laughs> it down you know obviously that scene doesn't have jamie or or colin in it so he was on to other stuff but yeah no i mean I've, if you can, why not? You know, I'm really fortunate to work with this guy, um, Eros Hoagland, who's a, a stills photographer now, but he was a photojournalist. And I got to know him because I watched um, the series on HBO called Witness, which uh, was exact produced by Michael Mann. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a fantastic documentary series about um, a photojournalist, like various ones. And like Eros was down in... Um, he was down in Tijuana, uh, no, um, um, Mexico, and uh, Juarez, and he was he was in uh, where did he go? He went further down into I'm trying to remember exactly where he went, but 
Um, and in the Congo, and it's just, I mean, it's beautiful. It was all shot on five Ds. And I, I think Michael came in like after it was made and kind of signed, you know, came on board to produce it. But as a result, Eros got to, he did all the stills on Black Hat. And then he mm. also just shot all the stills on the pilot episode of Tokyo Vice that Michael's doing. Yes. Um, and so I got to work with him and brought him on. And I got connected with him because I was just a fan of his work and we were going to work on another project. And, you know, he's always telling me stories about Mike. And, and really, you got to talk to those guys. I don't want to speak for them. But no, yeah, no. I mean, with, Bri with Brian and Wes, you know, it was a challenge to not make it feel like all I wanted to do was talk about <laughs> Michael. But at the same time, like, that's all I wanted to do. I was like, just tell me <laughs> stories. You know, Wes, Wes had you know, again, they should be the ones and I'm, I'm happy to connect you guys with them. But like he was telling us like, Katie's like, <laughs> I'm like, typical. the nicest guy, by the way, he's really, <laughs> both of them are sweethearts. And, and, you know, Wes told me that they would finish, you know, they would, they were doing the shootout, he told me about the shootout stuff. He's like, they would at the end of every, at the end of the day or at the end of every take, they'd be sweeping up all the brass yeah. from all the blanks. And he's like, they would be in piles like three, four feet high on the streets of downtown LA as we just unload <laughs> all of these weapons. But, you know, I didn't get any, I didn't get any last of the Mohican stories, but um, yeah, I mean, they, these guys, you know, they were great and they, they, it was just fun to be around them and, and, and work with them and sort of get a, you know, with Brian, it had been so long, like he hadn't, he hadn't worked with them again um, since Manhunter, but um it's it's that's like yeah, phase I mean, one. That's it's like man so, phase one. Yeah, yeah so so longer. And the funny thing with Brian Cox is like after everything he's done, there's still people going, "Hey, Manhunter," and he's like, "Really?" Like you can almost <laughs> tell in some of the interviews we read with him. It's like, yeah, it was like it was a lot of fun, and Michael was great, and it was so terrific. But like, he's like, I did four days on. Yeah, like I wasn't there for a long time. And then uh, he's yeah. like, yeah, there's another person who played Hannibal Lecter a little bit more right. memorable <laughs> than me. Yeah. That other people seem to gravitate to, too. But I think Brian's, again, if you're a man geek, it's just a, it's a different world, you know? And and again, like, the, I think that's what's really interesting, too, You because you've got what's really so distinct about Michael can be boiled down to, to Silence of the Lambs versus Manhunter. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Same story and and effect, well not same story red dragon i guess you know but yeah. like red dragon the the sort of commercial typical hollywood approach to that movie you see it and it's obvious right and everything is sort of perfectly lit and everything is perfectly shot and then you got michael's movie where yeah it was a different time and a different budget but even if he had the same budget in the same time he would have shot it completely differently in a completely different way and i think that's so distinct in his approach to these genre movies and these movies in particular that they just he is just seeing things differently than everyone else this i'm it's finally time katie it's finally yeah. time that someone on the show that's not me just want to be clear ladies and gentlemen listening that's not me brought up red dragon and so it is now time <laughs> for me to say definitively that that movie it's fucking garbage. They look. <laughs> they took Michael Mann's original script. They took Dante Spinotti. They had all the money in the world, and that movie has about as much style as a fucking cheeseburger. It is <laughs> ghastly. Yeah, it's one of the best actors in the whole world, maybe at the best part of their careers, and it's awful, overwhelmingly, staggeringly awful. There's like seven or eight <laughs> Oscar winners in that movie. And it's a bag of shit. There is more style in one frame of Manhunter than there is in that whole ghastly movie. This is Josh not talking. This is Blake talking, right. ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Just in case Josh needs to work with these people again. But I would happily tell anyone that that is the depths. That's the Mariana's Trench of everyone's <laughs> career who decided that they were going to do that movie. And dare try and what? Be better than Manhunter? Stop. <laughs> Wake up to yourself. Now, Brian Fuller's terrific show, Hannibal, does approach some of the same content and does it with, I feel like, a very Manian uh, panache style. It's all about the aesthetic. So much of it about the tone and the mood. And I just think that when you strip away, like, and even, even for all of its flaws, Ridley Scott's Hannibal has so much goddamn style. Like, Jonathan Demme, right. the most humanistic filmmaker of all time. The whole thing is about style. It's about the right. style of these interactions. And I love, you know, if you watch 
that's probably a great trilogy of films to watch. Manhunter, Michael Mann style, Jonathan Demme, one of the greatest humanistic filmmakers of all time. Just the empathy that bleeds through the lens is just insane. And then Ridley Scott, who's just got like swagger and style for days, all about this like Baroque kind of uh, uh, um, uh, architecture and framing and lighting, all those things, you know, Hannibal Lecter as a, a universal movie monster. Um, and then you've got Red Dragon and you may as well just wipe yourself with it and discard it. So Thank you for bringing that up so that Blake yeah. could have the, the I just needed to, to just that. say. And now you don't need to ever talk about it again. It's right? done. You can get it out there. It's yeah. done. But I appreciate you bringing it to this forum because you're right. You, you know, and this is when we, to pivot back to Miami Vice, we've talked about it a few times and it's just a good point to re reiterate. It's like, you could give that script to 10 different action filmmakers and it would not look anything. It would not exactly. look anything like Michael Mann's movie. It just wouldn't even, yeah. and I'm sure there are other movies that are out there that kind of look and feel like it. And I remember an interview where Jamie Foxx was talking about, Katie, did you ever see, or Josh, that there's a, a, like an action, twisty action thriller based in Las Vegas, I believe called sleeper. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah. 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 I think it's called Sleeper still. But yes, I'm aware of what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I don't think I've seen it. Yeah, well, take take a Google while I vamp with Josh here. But he <laughs> he um he was making this action movie. And at the time, I think what Fox was seeing in the material was sort of some of those ingredients maybe that drew him to Miami Vice. You know, some of those different things like, oh, it's a cool, like, twisty story. There's some cool character actors. We've got some great people that are along. And when you watch Sleeper, it's just it, – there's just something that – is restricting it. It's not, it just doesn't work. There's something about the alchemy of the way that it comes together, that the cogs don't click in and it just kind of never finds what it's trying to do. And I remember Jamie Foxx, like joking kind of, you know, you know, bit self-deprecating about it going like, I thought it would be like another Miami Vice. Like Miami Vice seems to have a following, but it just like, it didn't work. And he sort of like, yeah. you know, took it on the chin. And I'm just like, yeah, cause sometimes the ingredient, like sometimes on paper, it can sound like, a thing but that great filmmaker with that great style who's going to bring something extra um it's just not there it's called yeah, sleepless it, oh sleepless. sleepless sorry sleepless no 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 that's well, okay I, I think too that you know i mean the thing about man as well is that he just he's cre he's he's been fortunate in his success to be able to create the ways in which he makes movies, yeah. right? Which usually entails enormous amounts of research, um, enormous amounts of prep. You know, I mean, you look at, you know, one of the things they talk about on the Miami Vice thing is how when they were scouting, they carried around a fully built 35 millimeter camera package and wow. an HD camera package. Like <laughs> when I go wow. scout, I've got my iPhone. <laughs> right like they did it on black hat too they were talking about how they were out in in the bay of hong kong with the airy alexa like you know on the bow of a boat and it a huge wave come over it came over and totally destroyed the camera like oh my so God. they're walking around like oh you God. watch those behind the scenes and man is sitting on a bed shooting curtains flowing in the breeze <laughs> on 35 millimeter film and that's just scout footage that's just you know Get us it's the him, scout him, you know the <laughs> release the scout cut <laughs> yeah yeah like the the he, he goes i love this bedroom foot you know the the bedroom furniture in this room but let's bring it to the other house in you know a thousand miles away you oh, know god i love and, that shit and, so much <laughs> and how he combines things like that bathroom the bathroom that that gong lee and and, and colin farrell are in the shower that they're in that's not in the house that they're actually in for the rest. You know, it's like he chooses these little things, but he just has the ability to live in this environment and really think about it for a long time. And then even on the day when he's shooting, he just has that time to get that. And I know this from my perspective is like, as a filmmaker, I mean, like Mending the Line or Infamous, which I did before this. I mean, we shot those in 20, 23 days. Like, you know, that's nothing, you know, and, yeah. and, and on it, on that kind of shoot where you're shooting a normal script, you just don't have that time to step back and say, let's try this, let's try this. And not that you're just shooting a lot of footage, but that you're active, able to actively respond to what's being presented in front of you. And a lot of times directors, you know, without sort of getting into the naming movies or naming names, like you don't have that same kind of prep. You don't yeah. have that same kind of immersion that Michael gets on the movies he has. And 
I think that also leads to what's different. You know, with Ridley Scott and Soderbergh, it's volume. They're just like cranking them, right? Yeah. Like, Ridley, Soderbergh knows what he Ridley likes. Stop. 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 Ridley, Ridley, Ridley's like, we're going to set up eight cameras and we're just going to shoot the scene and then we're going to move on. You know? Ridley, Ridley, Ridley Scott is just like, I'm so jealous because you guys are in the States and I know that Katie has seen the House of Gucci. And I I'm saw just, House of Gucci on and Monday. I'm, and I'm Not just, and I, I'm just, Ridley Scott is just a like, He's a baller. Like, there's he's only a, one way. Yeah. To, he's a baller. Like, he is just. When you see there's him, like, hang out with. Him. No, when you see him give hang him, out with, like, give the, him the biggest player, movie in the world, give him a small drama. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, I like, mean, the fact that he replaced Christopher. Plum, I mean, he replaced Kevin that, Spacey with Christopher yeah. Plummer in, like, 10 days is insane. Baller. And then Christopher Plummer gets Oscar, nominated for an Oscar. Baller. I mean. <laughs> And doing piece. it at his age. I mean, it's, you know. know. The fact that he has Last Duel and House of Gucci, just like, I mean, they're, they, they're not going to be in cinemas at the same time, but it's just insane. I mean, the man the man is wild and he's doing it. He's still doing it well, which is which is amazing yeah. to say, yeah. to see. And, and then it's funny to me, just coming back to the, that idea of like, he has that enormous prep and he has that time and he has all that. He can shoot as many takes as he wants, you know, and all that stuff. At the same time, it's really interesting to me when you see the final movie and you see, like, there's a lot of mistakes in his movies, like things that people would say, why, like that, that's an error, right? I'll give you a great example. In the uh, scene in Black Hat where they're tossing the jail cell, there's a shot that looks like it's on the guards and the camera operator's hands reaches in and moves the guard out of the way. <laughs> Like, go back and watch it. Okay. Go back and watch it. You see, he's. it's like the guy's on the bed, the operator's on the bed, the guards are in front of him pulling the mattress, and you see the guy's hand reach in and move something out of the way. Like, and you're going, I know that's not the only take you have of that. Like, I guarantee it. So why is that in there? Like, why do you have that shot? Why did may, you maybe that the, Maybe that accident, he was like, to your point, Josh, of like immersion and subjective perspective, it's like, I actually want to feel what it would be like for one of the guards to move out of the way of one of their peers. And he's like, does the shirt right. kind of match? Does it like kind of feel like, <laughs> like, yeah, like I feel like they did. I, I love exactly what you've been talking about a lot, which is the ability to find the mistakes and the time. And I want to recommend, I know this is another random tangent. Sylvester Stallone is making Rocky, another recut of Rocky Four. You know, a lot of people have been talking about the robot mostly, but there's actually for free on his YouTube, an hour and a half documentary about him remaking Rocky IV. And so you've got this man in his 70s really talking through the psychology of how insanely fast-paced, you know, um, the filmmaking was at the time, how, how many million feet of footage they went through for all of the fights, all those things. And you literally watch him and as he's cutting it, you're like, God, all this stuff he's saying makes sense. Like, listen how wise Sylvester Stallone is as a filmmaker. Like he's just, he's probably forgotten more about making movies than most other people have ever Completely. learned. And yeah. it's just like, it's totally a film school in a, in, in a, in a little capsule of him just like, see this cut, see that, this cut, see this shot. That's unforgiving. He goes, I would never let that right. shot fly now because it's so unforgiving. Cause he's like, if you put it on this angle, it fakes the depth perception. If you put it right in front of their face and 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 the shot misses, you see it. Not nah, we're going to replace that. This should have had more air. We should have had more time. Oh, and then he saw a shot of himself in you know close up, and he's like, "God, that's such a vain shot. Give me another shot." God, I was so vain back then. It's so great, but it's like right. exactly what you're talking about. Is like sometimes he's now going getting to go back, um, and make all these changes, give all this air, have all this nuance. But I, I, I just am blown away that big directors still allow for organic things to happen on their sets. I honestly right. think the sign of a master filmmaker is if you can ignore the continuity errors. Like, yes. There are oh, so yeah. many continuity errors in, in Scorsese films, yes. you know, famously in Goodfellas, where the cups keep moving around during yeah. the yeah. Um, conversation um, at the table. And it's like no the 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 thing is the is the feeling the thing is the vibe the thing is not the cups like i always say like <laughs> when i'm looking at a film and i'm like counting the continuity errors that means the movie isn't that good because i'm not yeah. invested in what the yeah. script is saying what the characters are doing and what the actors are doing like i'm 
I, I, I can forgive any continuity error when I'm like emotionally invested, but when I'm not emotionally invested and then I start doing that stuff, then you're like, something's going wrong here. And, yeah. and man is like, I always say like his films, even though they are so effortful, like they're so uh, planned and prepared and researched heavily and, and, you know, scouted with 35 millimeter cameras, like the, the effect is an effortlessness when I am watching. And, right. and just it like nobody does it like him. Like he's just yeah. capturing it. Yes, yeah. yes. And that's it, such it, a hard quality it's to- It's so to hard. Capture. It's so hard. When you watch people, I mean, I'm a critic, so I've seen so many movies that just like do not work. And when you see something that worked, you're like, this guy's got it. Yeah. <laughs> this, yeah. I mean, this, just- This young whippersnapper, Michael Mann has got it. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. to your point on set, so often we're saying, oh, if anybody notices that, we've already lost him. Totally. Like they're not paying attention to the rest of the movie. So yeah. what can you do about it? You know, there's, there's, um, uh, I mean, and then there's other little weird things he does too. Like in the scene with, uh, where Colin Farrell and Gong Lee are, are in the car, you know, having sex, like in the, in the back of the SUV, he says, you know, hola chica. And then it cuts to a shot of her and he, she says, hola chico. That shot is basically a shot that then gets reversed again like if you look at it it's a very weird shot where he kind of bounces and zooms in and then it bounces and zooms out mm. the effect being i know as an editor and as a director i'm like i'm trying to hold on that shot for more time yes. right i'm not ready to cut when that cuts but like he does that a lot he, i think he does that in the pilot episode of um that happens in the pilot episode of uh of miami vice the show there's a weird shot like shot and then it reverses back onto itself mm. as a way of creating more time like you know, and 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 part of the thing that I want to talk about, or the, when we talked about what I could speak about, was the ending. There's this scene where, um, where where you know Jamie Fox like grabs her hand at the very end, and it freeze frames for like a half a second. It, <laughs> yeah. it freeze frames, and you're like, that's such a weird like why? It's so interesting. Like man has all the time in the world to get what he needs to capture it. He does, you know, he sometimes does hundreds of takes I've heard, you know, and he'll, he'll often do things where he'll just take 24 frame footage and he'll slow it down. So it looks really choppy. And you're like, yeah, but you could have shot that in slow motion. Like what I, I'm so <laughs> fascinated by the choices that get made by somebody that I sometimes have to do that because I have nothing else. I don't have that option. You know, I've got to <laughs> yeah. go with it, but you do. And so there's got to be intention behind that, or there's yeah. got to be a sense of, of of aesthetic choice or reasoning or thought behind that that fascinates me and makes re-watching these movies so doable because it just constantly asks those questions of me as a viewer and I never get the answers. So I'm it, it's again like <laughs> it's like a magic trick. Once you know how the trick's done, like you lose interest, you know? Um and so that to me is is you know it's so it's weird. Like in Ali there's a shot where he comes in to talk to uh, his, his, you know, it's in the winter and he's running and he comes in and talks to his lawyer. And in one of the, one of the versions of the film, it's like sits down to an, into a two shot and you see on the right side of the frame, you full on see the camera map box, the operator's hands, like it cuts right into it. And then it cuts to that shot <laughs> that was clearly being shot at the same time. like. And, you know, it's you, as an editor, you're always looking to take that stuff out. And I highly doubt that it just slipped through. Like, I do not believe that it was as just a like that. Michael Unf doesn't notice that stuff. Unfortunately, it's the best take, you know, unfortunately, yeah. it's the best there, take. And, 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 and it's got to stay. Right. Right. I mean, there's there's a <laughs> and, and there's a mistake. Again, if I if I had to boil it down, if I had an elevator ride with Michael and I had one question to ask him, it would be this. There's the scene at the end of The Insider when Al Pacino is walking through the control room. Mm -hmm. It's like a steady cam, and they're walking with him, and it it hits something, and then it um. keeps going. Like if you go back and rewatch that scene, it's not some nice smooth dolly. It's not like you know it's it's he's walking and it goes like that, and it janks on something. And I want to ask him like, <laughs> what is the deal? Why is that in the movie? Like it's, you clearly had other takes. You must've had other takes. And that... all it is is Pacino walking through. He's not, it's not a performance. It's not anything else. It's just this little shot and it's, it's a jank. And you're just like, there's that... gotta be something to it that because question... I know you have other choices. 
the answer to that question will unlock everything that we've been talking about yeah. for the past like exactly. 10 yeah. minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, that, I, that will explain everything. I so was just going to ask before, that question <laughs> but before, before we get, before we just get onto the end, that's uh Josh showing he, himself to be um, in the line with the David Finches of the world, because there's a, you know, he talks about in even like curious case of Benjamin Button, Kate Blanchett's in this shot with a baby who's meant to be baby Benjamin Button. And just right. very organically, the little baby who she's holding his hand looks up at her and gives her a little kiss. And that's the shot that's in the movie. And David Finch's camera operator was so excited that they got that, that he was shaking his hand, thumbs up into Fincher, <laughs> and the camera was shaking. And Fincher's like, stop fucking shaking the camera. Stop shaking the camera. And that's on the commentary track of that movie. And so that's why you have to buy that movie just for that commentary track because it's so funny. And I'm just like, right. I imagine someone going like, for him, it's so important that you guys, they ended up digitally adjusting the camera shake or whatever. But yeah, it's yeah. like, you know, you can, you've got the, a little bit more of the command of the digital. But I think it's funny that, think that, that, that you just pick that up. That's it's, it's yeah, your, your like, eye is trained for that. I think that Michael and where he's gone with his aesthetic, you know, but even going back to parts of like, you know, Last of the Mohicans, where he started really kind of playing with more handheld and playing with un, a unique approach to, to the work was, um, I think he's become, he's, he's, my take is that he's fascinated by imperfection as much as he's like constantly in search of accuracy and truth and, you know, perfection. Like when he's talking to, he's telling him, you got to hold the hand like that as he's cutting through with the knife. Like, you know, he's got that very specific thing. There's also such an element of imperfection in his movies in the way that it's shot in the performances and the unpredictability of it. That is, is I think also what makes it exciting to watch is like, there's, it, they're not perfect movies in the stylistic sense. There's a lot of, mistakes in them you know there's a lot of errors in them there's a lot of imperfections in that camera work and and the way it would move there you know there's shots in Miami Vice where they're on John Ortiz and all of a sudden it just shifts and there's no reason for the shift there's no reason for that you know he has these way of doing these zooms like he never dollies it like you'll never see a dolly or rarely see a dolly a push in yeah a push in dolly move in a Michael Mann film he'll track stuff but now what he does and what he's done or what he's been doing a lot of is he does a zoom and he does these very imprecise zooms. It's not on a controlled dial or anything like that. It almost looks like somebody's, you know, janking it themselves. And I've started playing with that in my own work, but like, that's what he'll do to push in. And so you'll see that it's, it's a quality to it that he's after, you know, that's, that's really unique. And, and just to bring that around, cause I know we never even got to it, but the idea of like the ending of Miami Vice, right? Like the finale of it, like, I think the, the reason why I wanted to talk about it um, or why I brought it up was that to, to me, it contains three distinct elements that make Miami Vice so interesting and, and different and, 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 and rewatchable, but also make them distinctly Michael Mann films. And that is one, the safe house that they go to, you know, at the end when he, yeah. he sends her off. So I went down and, found where it was um, <laughs> when I was in Miami. This I was is like, a confessional. I got to go see it. And it's down in, um, uh, uh, it's on down in Sugarloaf Key, in, in the Keys. And I can tell you that that location is, you can look it up. It's called Sammy Creek Landing. Just give in, us the address and um <laughs> yeah no but that's we're filming the show launch. next week. <laughs> but if you if you look up Sammy Creek Landing, that's where they shot that. And and the house that was there has since been torn down and it's been turned into a boat ramp or a boat launch or whatever. Oh, but it's down yeah. in like Sugarloaf. Mm. You see the bridge. The bridge yeah. is right there. Mm -hmm. Sugarloaf Key. That is nowhere near anywhere else that they shot Miami Vice. Like it is, it is a three-hour drive to get down to that location. So to me, that idea that man is—I mean, I get going to Uruguay, I get you know going to Ciudad del Este, I, I get going to Haiti, whatever. Like you're shooting blocks of scenes there, but let's go down to, let's take three hours to drive to get down to this out of the way location that is nowhere near anything else. And then shoot this scene is one, a distinctly Michael Mann choice, right? I think to like set that there and do that there when 
there's numerous other closer locations that would have would have worked. The other thing is in the scene with Jamie Foxx uh, in the hospital at the end, the freeze frame on the hand. Such an interesting, unique way of using editing to like just freeze that moment in time, right? Like to freeze to 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 fuse them together in a way that um, just holds on it. But but an odd choice to to reflect that, right? He could have said, okay, just freeze, grip your hand and just hold it there for a second, hold it for a beat, right? I think is really interesting. And then the end, which is, you know, uh, Colin Farrell walking, you know, the camera again, using this zoom, it's got this janky zoom in move. They pick him up, they go past this massive white trailer that I guarantee you any DP would have said, why is this huge truck there? Probably a camera truck. I guarantee you that's a production truck because why is there a massive semi at a hospital? I don't know. And it looks just like a production truck and it's a giant white semi trailer. I'm loving um, this. And, and, and it pushes in and it cuts before he gets into the door. Yeah. Like, why does it cut? Like that, that's like, again, you think of these ending scenes, you think of Last of the Mohicans standing over the ridge, right? Like as, as the music plays, you think of the end of Heat, like De Niro and Pacino locked in, in, in a handhold with this beautiful tableau framed around him. You know, even like, you know, you look at Ali, he's got his hands up, like, as he's framed in the rain in the black, right? And then you go to like Miami Vice and it's a shot of Colin Farrell from a distance with a giant semi-trailer in it, <laughs> walking into this tiny little lit doorway and he doesn't even get into it. Like, again, I just think I'm so like endlessly this idea, I think one, the idea that he's going back to him, but that he never gets to his buddies again. I don't know what to make of it, but it, to me, it's it's such an, a choice that I don't see any other director making. You know, and those little three elements in the, in the finale of this movie all add up to me as just such a distinct representation of Michael Mann's work and his aesthetic and how he approaches films and and the fact that he's trying to do more than just tell the story. You know, he's trying to really cement the audience in that perspective, but it's there's such a weirdness to it. That, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's 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 it just makes you want to rewatch it because you're like, I'm missing something. something <laughs> yes. I'm missing an element that is below the surface that I can't quite get. And I got to keep watching it because at some point I'll crack it. Um, oh my and, God. And so those to me, and not to mention the other one quick thing, I, I don't want to take too much of the time, but the other thing that has anybody talked about the lightning? Yeah, the we've sort of like touched the, on like the the we've the, touched the on the fact, fact that it was a, a hurricane. The har- in a it's hurricane. a hurricane, but there are so many scenes with shots where the lightning is going off. I mean, there's Nicholas in his condo yeah. and right as he hangs up the phone, lightning goes off. There's them standing on the parking lot. Meanwhile, still, you know, meanwhile, does not track. Boom, lightning. like lightning goes off. Like Colin Farrell at the trunk answering the call from, you know, uh, John Ortiz, like, you know, lightning goes off. Like there's, I get that they were shooting during hurricane season, but to have captured many, some of that perfectly yes. timed Do you imagine how many takes I mean, imagine how many <laughs> takes imagine they're just many... waiting they're like oh we missed it do it again do no it but again. imagine do how many again. takes I, I actually think it might be the inverse in some instances where the lightning is just going and they're making the choice and Michael's like no we're going with you know, we've got to find the lightning that best punctuates what we're doing um, but right, right. Yeah, like it's like Michael will wait for the lightning strike and we will keep <laughs> doing it till we get it we're going to yep, do this 130 yep. times this because I'm want- harnessing the power of God. He's like the, the controlling the weather. <laughs> right. He's like, we're going to get this guy. Don't worry. Yeah. Like, yep. And, and, you know, to me, it's just like, yeah, it's, it's strange. And it's, and it's interesting knowing how long they shot. Like I worked with the guy who did stunts on infamous and he was a stunt driver on Miami vice. And he's like, we spent three weeks out on that freeway every night for three weeks doing oh all God. that freeway stuff so it's a, that's a lot of time yeah. you know i mean that's the amount of time I sh- i've shot movies in you know and, and they're <laughs> yeah. just doing that one scene so he's clearly after this element and this unpredictability and this this stuff that that is laying on top of a bedrock of authenticity and and sort of um and research and and he's combining these two into this aesthetic that has such a level of unpredictability to it and and it just keeps you right on the edge you know you're constantly trying to pick up on what they're saying you're constantly trying to understand it it requires michael's work i think just requires a very much a a lean in quality to what you're watching it is not a sit back and just 
have it come at you. You have to really come at it. And if you do, you're rewarded, I think. And if you're not, you tend to not really like it or you tend to be let down by it, you know, or, or, or just um, disappointed in it because it's not a spoon fed surface level story. You know, he's really trying to take this stuff and elevate it in a really unique way. And only he really knows what, what that is going to be. Well, Josh, thank you so much for scouting Sammy Creek landing for us. That's where the show is going to be coming from every single week in a safe house Final that, show. I'm, that I'm a hundred percent, I'm a hundred percent sure that Michael Mann, actually, it was a safe house in Michael Mann's production company. That's the only way he could have known that that location was there. Um, that is not a location you find unless you are just going and, and that you find it somehow in a different way. Yeah. That's probably a real safe house, like you said. Yes, Luke, exactly. Luke, Luke, Josh, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thanks so much for reaching out. Um, like, uh, really uh, looking forward to catching Men in the Line um, to to see your great work and to see what happened beyond uh, harassing West Studi about Michael Mann. So that's <laughs> it's such a treat to talk to you. It's so amazing to hear how tuned your eyes are to those edits. I mean, I think people are going to get a kick out of listening to you like, just those little fastidious like things that would really annoy a filmmaker who's got an aptitude in directing and editing and all those things. I think it's so <laughs> it fun. It clearly comes from watching it a it, lot. Yeah, it <laughs> yes. from, but that's what I mean. Your eyes are tuned to it. You know, Katie and I feel like sometimes because of this, particularly in this movie, we're watching it so much. We're seeing all these little layers. We're seeing these beats, these things that pop up or we ignore, you know, tactful, uh, tactfully ignore basically. But it's a treat talking to you and just uh, look, thank you so much for being a part of the show. I think it's going to be a blast for people to listen to. And I guarantee you people are going to be like, wait, they're going to like, I feel like so many people are going to pause yes. this episode and get immediately go, back. go and look go back and watch it. So uh, if, if that's, if that's the joy that we can create for people to go back and keep revisiting this, then um, uh, it's a thrill, but look, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Yeah, thank man. You. And if you're li- for those listening to us, it is our time. It is now three twelve o'clock. And that is the hand that we have been dealt. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, this is Blake Howard, host and producer of One Heat Minute Productions podcast. We dive into the great and underappreciated cinematic works, often one minute or one scene at a time. Our crew of guests are some of the most wonderful filmmakers, writers, authors, and critics ever assembled. Our shows include One Heat Minute, Josie and the Podcats, All the President's Minutes, Increment Vice, and right now, Zodiac Chronicle. Check out oneheatminute.com or find us wherever you get your podcasts.